seek the Lord's instruction as we come to the Word. We depend, Father, on the ministry of the Spirit of God now to teach us your truth. We have sung these truths, and I pray that through our time and worship in this liturgy that it would continue to shape, mold our thinking, direct our ways to know you better, to walk more faithfully with you, to find in you our joy and strength. We pray now that as we match what we have sung, what has been prayed and recited and read I pray, Father, that we would now link that to the text that is before us and that you, by your Spirit, would provide instruction and guidance in the Word. We need you. We draw upon that strength. I pray that you would bring conviction and wisdom and even, by your grace, salvation this day as we labor together in the Word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Notice that word weak in verse 6. While we were weak, Christ died for us. His love, verse 8, is shown. It is revealed. It is evidenced for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Most people spend their entire lives denying that they are sinners deserving of God's eternal judgment. They never truly face the fact that they have broken God's law, that they have failed to bring glory to Him as Lord of all. And tragically then, they never experience the joy of forgiveness that comes through God's unmerited love. They never taste the wonder of Christ dying to pay the penalty of their sin or rising from the dead to deliver his people from death and judgment. It's a sad reality. But we gather today, as we just have been singing, confessing that we were once those sinners for whom Christ died, that he died to redeem. And for the rest of our lives, we come back again and again to this news while we were sinners Christ died for us. Believer, much of your spiritual growth as a Christian hinges on exalting in and applying the good news that Christ died for you. But we need to take another step in our growth, in a different direction. Our spiritual maturity also depends on coming to terms with this reality that Christ died for that church member seated next to you, in front of you, behind you, across the aisle. Our walk with God depends on rejoicing in and living out the life that we have in Christ by virtue of his death and his resurrection in our place, always coming back to that center in our daily walk. 
but we will falter until we are also ruled by the reality that Jesus died for our brothers and sisters in him. As we do so, our lives will be marked increasingly by the kind of love that Jesus had for sinners when he died for them. For this love that propelled him to make that sacrifice for sinners will propel us to relate to his people in similar ways. When we realize that love was centered on others just as assuredly as it is centered on us, we begin then to live in love. Such a worldview, I think, is driving Paul's thinking here as we come to the 8th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He deals with yet another controversy with the church between himself and the members of the church. I would take this text, as many do. That issue is eating food offered to idols, which Paul takes up in the section that runs from chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 11 and verse 1. We've got to get a little history here, and this will serve us as we work through chapters 9 and 10 as well, but it's just not our world. Um, we must understand that all over Corinth were temples, temples to false gods, and there people would offer animal sacrifices to a particular god honored at that temple. So an animal would be slaughtered, and there were slaughterhouses right next to the temples generally, and animal would be slaughtered, and a portion of that meat would be burned on an altar to the god. Then another aspect or piece of that meat would be given to the worshiper, and it would also be shared with the priest. And there would usually then be something left over that would be taken to the market, sold, and then resold at the marketplace. Everyone in the Corinthian church knew this culture, knew this situation. This was their life. This was, as I mentioned uh, previously, this was their restaurants. This was just where they, where they ate and uh, where if they, if many of them that were poor, this is the only place they got meat, was at these pagan temples. Now, in the temples, there were kind of three-sided rooms with open face to the central courtyard where worshipers would come and gather and in these, these enclaves, they were like smaller dining areas. They were small enough to allow for an intimate gathering of some sort, and yet they were public in the sense they had no front wall, so everybody could see who was eating in those places. So every Christian in any pagan setting, such as Corinth, would have to come to terms with what do you do with this meat offered to idols? It was an issue of worship. Christ is Lord. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. You have come to saving faith in him. How do you relate to this food that's been offered to idols? How do you relate to the pagan temples? How do you relate to really the restaurants in the town? Often these gatherings at the temple were purely religious. False worship of a pagan god. But there could also be gatherings there at these places for a birthday party, a coming-of-age celebration, a business gathering of people in the same profession who gather there. Invitation. There's many of these invitations that still exist today. You can read them. As you're, you're invited to a sacrifice at this temple on this day. And so this was part of people's cultural life. 
That's the setting. It's got nothing to do with our setting. Uh, It does, but it's really different than the world in which we live, and we can be thankful for that. But as with chapter 7, we also find then that there are some kind of gnarly interpretive issues here, and I'm not going to get into all of the details of them and why I land where I land. There's just not time or any profit in doing that. But I want to be honest up front here that I've made some conclusions on the text, and people differ somewhat on what's going on here. But I'll, I'll put my cards on the table up front And that is that Paul addresses a different situation in Corinth than he addresses in Romans chapter 14. I think without that acknowledgement, we trip down the wrong way. Although the passages are very similar, there's many similarities, we're dealing with the basic same cultural setting, the Romans faced internal tensions over the morality of eating non-kosher meat in their homes. The Corinthians were eating that meat in pagan temples. And their debate was not so much among themselves. There was some element of that as we think of the weaker and the stronger. But was far more with Paul. So I think this will make more sense of his intensity in chapter 9 than he's trying to referee an intramural squabble between the strong and the weak, which would be much more like the Romans context. Here he's dealing with a little bit different situation. Number two, I would say that 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, 1, just a really bad chapter division there (laughs) through the end of chapter 10, but they missed verse 1. Uh, It forms a single unit addressing primarily the matter of believers dining in pagan temples on meat sacrificed to idols. Chapter 8 then must be read in harmony with chapters 9 and 10, not with Romans chapter 14. Again, many similarities with Romans 14, but you've got to take this unit itself and you've got to read chapters 9 and 10. They've got to make sense with chapter 8. So there's some real work that has to be done there, and I'm assuming that work as I speak to you today. Thirdly, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 must be harmonized with chapter 10, 14 through 11, 1. Is Paul's counsel sounded in 8, 9? that is his full counsel to them, or does he delay his main point until chapter 10? This is a a major issue to consider. I won't answer that question here, but as we walk through. So with all of that said, and that's a bit academic, I realize this is a challenging passage, as was chapter 7, and we, we have to trace down certain paths and make certain decisions as we try to reconstruct what's really going on here. I think this is the best reconstruction as far as I can discern. But with that said, let's dive into a topic that is quite distant from our own challenges today, but rests on the key Christian principle of love for those Jesus died to save. So in the first place, Paul argues that we must subordinate knowledge of God's truth to love for God's people. We must subordinate knowledge of God's truth to love for God's people. Verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. What Paul, where Paul ends his counsel in chapter 10 indicates that he addresses what they are eating, but is more concerned with where they are eating it. 
He may delay addressing the where because they have opposed his counsel, which he will repeat after setting the table in chapters 8 and 9. That he's setting the table here is really indicated right away by the fact that he brings up their question and then abandons it. What does he say? Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I was like, well, we want to know about the meat offered to idols. And he starts somewhere else. He sets the principle, first of all, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul's not opposed to knowledge as such. What he opposes is naked knowledge, knowledge unadorned by love for others. He objects to the way some in the church take pride in their grasp of true doctrine with little thought of how that affects some church members. So Paul again rebukes the Corinthian pride. He does that several times in the book, more than in any other. And here he rebukes their pride in what they know of God's truth. Naked knowledge of God's will is destructive. Only knowledge infused with love can build others up. So your knowledge, he could say it this way, is filling you with pride and arrogance. Love edifies. It builds up. It encourages others. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Uh, That's a rebuke. He's not being nice to them there. He's being direct. He's being corrective here. You think you know something? You're a know-it-all? You've not begun to know anything. If you think you've arrived at knowledge, then you're a fool. One commentator says this nicely, knowledge is proud that it has learned so much. Wisdom is humble that it knows no more. They were filled with pride that they knew doctrine and they knew how to live their lives. Well, there's certainly a warning here, isn't there, against those in our day who grasp some doctrine or embrace some system of theology and swing it about like an axe. If you are seeing truth in God's word, receive it humbly. If you're learning truth somewhere and your eyes are opening up to the truth that God has revealed, rejoice in that. Be thankful for that. But just remember, you may not be as right as you think you are. But we can be certain of this. True knowledge always strives to build others up in the faith through love, never through arrogant argumentation. You've, you've, you've undoubtedly crossed paths with some individuals that think this way. I have doctrinal truth, and they're always arguing, always seeking to put others down, always seeking to put themselves up as those who have arrived. All of this is empty of love, and in chapter 13, he's going to say it's all plain empty. True knowledge builds up. Think of our Savior, 12 years of age, and he astonishes the experts of the law at the temple. That's a a top tier. That's the cream of the crop, and the 12-year-old is mesmerizing them with his knowledge of Scripture. And then Jesus, in his ministry, spoke to thousands, 
crowds following him, risking life and limb just to get around his teaching. But in the end, Jesus did not leave behind a theology book. He left behind a bloody cross. He left behind disciples who knew that they had never been so loved by anyone. And then, witnessing his death, they saw the one who died for sinners. Knowledge on its own is empty, but knowledge with love edifies. He continues down this line, just one more line, verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What is all important is not what you know, but that God knows you. You can have all the biblical knowledge in the world and go straight to hell when you die. But if you love Christ, it is because you are known by the one who becomes our wisdom. So Paul starts here. Let's talk about this food offered to idols. And he starts there by knocking them off their high horse in verses 1 through 3. He steers their focus to the love of others. This was not at all their orientation, which will be made clear. So before answering their question, he stresses that the knowledge of God's truth must be rooted in love for God's people or it is empty. He then proceeds to stress that truth, however, does indeed matter. If we stop the issue here, we can say only love matters. But as he proceeds from this point, he wants to stress, no, truth matters as well. That truth must, however, be rooted in love. It must move toward others to build them up as Christ built up those around him. But then secondly, verses 4 through 6, he doesn't want to be misunderstood, so he says we must continue holding firmly to God's truth. Verse 4, therefore as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. The uh, ESV text has these statements and quotations, I think that's probably right, this is truth that they were grasping. They had come to know Christ out of their paganism, and they said, we know that an idol has no real existence. We know that there is no God but one. Idols are a figment of unbelievers' imaginations and nothing more. There is only one God. These are true doctrines, right theology. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, As indeed there are many gods and many lords, as he's saying there, that that in the cultural perception of pagans, yes, they worship many gods and many divine lords. Verse 6, yet for us, for the believer, we know there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And we know there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So pagans believe in the reality of many gods, many divine lords, but it's all a figment of the imagination. It's not real. You know this. I know this. We know there is one God. Not two Not three, not a supreme God, 
and his son, a lesser God whom the Father created. No, there's one God. Capital G, there are no small g's. From this one God, all creation finds its source such that we exist for him. If you've joined us here today and you say, I really, I know I have no saving knowledge of Christ. I know I've not come to be born again by trust in the gospel of Jesus. Unbeliever, this is what you are fundamentally missing in your life. This is the emptiness in your soul. You imagine that you exist for yourself. You imagine that life is about being the best version of yourself. You must look out for number one. This is the truth, the liberating truth that God reveals in his word. We exist for God. Not for self. We are saved in part by this truth that we exist for the one who created us. The only way to grasp this truth is to turn from your sin and repentant trust in Jesus as your Savior from you who you are right now. We exist for God. And believer, let us celebrate it. Let us find our hope in it. I exist for him. He does not exist for me as such, not ultimately. And I don't exist for my own glory and myself. We exist for him. Get that right. And it's like a shoulder that's out of socket that gets put back into socket. It's, oh, that's what life is about. Now let's press this a different direction. This one God creates all things and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Wait a minute. Is there one creator? Or is there two? If there is only one creator, then Jesus is that creator. He is not created. So this is where we draw a passage such as this, the doctrine that there is one God, there are two persons. Indeed, we learned later with the Holy Spirit that there are three One God, so he says there is one God. We agree on this. There is one God and. That word and puts it all into place. And there is one Son through whom everything exists. One God, but Father and Son. One God in three persons. So there's two options here for us. We can believe what the scripture reveals on this matter, such as here, and say, can't fully grasp it, fully understand it, but it's what God has revealed, and I'll work that out as I try to understand. 
Or we can devise some scheme by which to make more sense of things, in which case you will always fall into all sorts of nonsense. There is one God, and creation is through the Father and the Son and the Spirit. One God, not three. Three persons, not a capital God, G, and a small case God. One God, three persons. Well, we agree on this. Truth. We absolutely must, says Paul. Brothers and sisters, I'm not supplying you with any truth here. You understand that there is one God and that Christ is God. He is the creator. Everything exists through him. He is the agent of creation. Nothing exists apart from him. We agree on this. Zeus has got nothing to do with it. Aphrodite has got nothing to do with it. There is one God. But here's what the Corinthians were saying. Since there is one God, since these false gods do not exist, then this food is being offered to nothing. So to eat it is no problem. To gather there at the pagan temple and to eat this meat is no problem because there's no gods here. This is just a statue. There's nothing there. Paul's going to object to this thinking. But he does so. And I'm, I'm sensing that it's my understanding that he's going to delay until he gets to this in chapter 10. But he starts here with what they first must understand. And that is thirdly, that love for one another must inform how we apply the truth that we know. Love for one another must inform how we apply the truth that we know. So, verses 4 through 6, I agree with you. Verses 1 through 3, we've got a problem here. You're grabbing knowledge without love. But we do agree on the truth, verses 4 through 6, and it is utterly essential. You are right. There is one God and only one God. But here I take umbrage, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Not all possess this knowledge. He's not talking about monotheism, that not all acknowledge that there is only one God. But what he means is they don't have the knowledge that you do as you eat at these pagan temples. Although they know the truth in their head, objectively, that there is no such thing as these false gods, yet subjectively, as they eat that meat without thinking, they, they can't think of it any other way than as homage to this false god. That's what's going on in their conscience, what's in their heart. So their conscience is screaming at them not to eat meat offered to idols, and you are encouraging them to do so. This is where knowledge and love have to come together and love has to win. I agree with you. We clearly see that idols are nothing. But not everybody sees this clearly. Verse 8, here's the principle. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. I think the way that's stated in verse 8 kind of hits us the op- Like We'd think he'd say it the opposite way. Right, Those who are abstaining from food are doing good, and those who are eating it are doing bad to themselves. He would state it opposite, 
But I think he puts it this way here because the so-called strong with knowledge are saying that by eating, we are building up our faith. We're like, like really being strong in this situation by eating this meat because we're saying the idols do not exist. And they're thinking then that those who don't eat this meat offered to idols at the pagan temples with them are continuing in their weakness. He sets this straight by saying, they're no worse off if they don't eat and you're no better off if you do eat. Eating the food does not pull us away from God, it doesn't draw us to him. In my demon studies in seminary courses, this issue came up in more than one class. And there were pastors in these classes that argued that godliness was pursued and a Christian built up in the faith if he or she drinks alcohol. If you do not drink alcohol, you are showing that you're a legalist, that you are basing your Christian faith on works, some false uh, idea here, and therefore you should exercise faith to drink alcohol. Without touching any of this discussion any further, it's interesting, that's exactly where there are, they are here. They say it's, it's the godly people who do this. So they were saying in this class, uh, numerous uh, pastors, as, as I, we debated these issues, but you are made more godly by drink, is what they were saying. Paul's saying here, it is not one way or the other, in itself. Food in itself, drink in itself, is not the thing that draws you to God or away from God. There are other issues that need to be considered. Now, why you eat or drink anything and how much you eat or drink of anything is another story. I also assume here in verse 8 that when Paul says we're no worse off if we, we're no better off if we eat or no worse off if we don't, or I'm also assuming he's talking about normal food, not what some fools eat that you see sometimes just to get attention. He's just talking about normal food and drink as it's in itself. This cannot bring you closer to God or further away from God. It has nothing to do with this. So at verse 9 now, he'll begin to strike at the very heart of the matter. That's, forget that. Yes, I understand. There's one God. These false gods do not exist. Food, drink, they're not going to bring you closer to God or drive you far away in and of itself. But there's more to consider. Verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That was not the direction they were thinking. The weak. We're, we're helping the weak along. We're helping them along to recognize that eating here in these pagan temples is really not wrong. There's nothing wrong with it because these gods don't exist. We're helping them out. He says, you may be tearing them down. 
This brings us to the point I mentioned in the introduction regarding interpretation. Does right here, verse 9, does right, you, uh, but take care that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block. Is this right? Does it speak of Christian liberty? A moral freedom to do so? Or do we take the word right here more in the sense of a natural sense? That is, does right speak merely of social liberty one can exercise as a community member? So is there a moral content to this is right, your right to do this? Or is it more just you're free to do this, you have social freedom to do this? Because Paul in chapter 10 will tell them you can't eat at pagan temples. That's where he's heading in chapter 10. I hesitate then to read this as a matter of Christian liberty. Now the case can be made that eating meat for, say, a birthday party at a pagan temple was fine in Paul's mind. You can find people that make that point at great length, and I think we should listen to the possibility. But tentatively, I would say that Paul uses right here more in the sense of social freedom, not as a matter of Christian liberty. So in chapter 10, he will tell them not to eat at pagan temples because there's more to it than just no gods and food. I think he will link chapter 10 and say, remember we talked about this in chapter 6? They went to the temples for a meal and had a woman for dessert. He said, you can't do that. Prostitution, no. This is not the way of a Christian believer. I think what he's going to do is then draw the connection to participation at, at pagan temples as well. You can't go there and not participate in what's happening. But all of that then, to say in chapter 10, he will tell them this, adamantly restricting them, as he adamantly restricted them from visiting prostitutes at the temples in chapter 6. But whatever view one takes, whether there could be something legitimate happening at the temple in a meal or never, Whatever view one takes, you may cause a brother or sister to stumble morally by dining at a pagan temple, and that's what we need to come to terms with. So whatever position we would take in understanding what Paul's saying, where he's aiming is crystal clear. You need to think in love about your brothers and sisters. That's number one. So verse 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Is walking by this temple and they look on in that little enclave where you are and you're eating with others and they see you there and their heart is stricken with the sense that this is sin, this is wrong, they shouldn't be there. Is it not possible that in exercising the freedom that you have, that you will be drawing them down and leading them into sin? This is something you've got to consider. As we think of verse 10, who were those, these strong conscience Corinthian believers thinking about? They were thinking only about themselves. They were proud in their biblical knowledge. They were happy to fit into society and to fill their stomachs with meat. They fancied themselves counselors of the weak, helping them strengthen their faith by eating in the temples. But Paul rebukes them. You are not loving the precious souls for whom Christ died. Verse 
you are all taken up with what you know, how wise you are. You do not begin to show wisdom until you prioritize the spiritual state of others. We live for God, and we live then for one another. Verse 11, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So verse 10, someone sees you in the temple, his conscience is, uh, speaks of his guilt. And so then verse 11, your knowledge brings this weak person to destruction, the brother for whom Christ died. This destruction, there's debate on whether this is eternal destruction. It could be that. Or just harming them spiritually in their growth. The word would typically speak of eternal destruction. And so may picture here one who gets drawn back into paganism and abandons Christ and the faith through what you're doing. You influence them that way. How terrible that would be. And Paul doesn't tamp down his exhortation as he continues in verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. These two phrases are strong. The brother for whom Christ died and sinning against Christ. You sin against that brother, that sister, you draw them into wrong, you're sinning against Christ himself. Jesus takes this very seriously, as does the Apostle Paul here. We see how precious a soul is to Christ. I talked to a pastor uh, here recently, and his son was attacked by the neighbor's dog and left some pretty bad wounds. Uh, it was the negligence of the neighbor. I mean, the neighbor was just not being smart. And what did this dad do? Like any dad that loves his son, it was like the dog had bitten him. <laughs> and he went to this neighbor and explained to him this wasn't going to happen again. He defended his son. He was, he was like, this is my son and you're, this is my little boy and you're, you're not watching for him. And this, this can't happen again. And as he's telling the story, it's like you couldn't tell the difference between the dog biting his son and biting him. Do we think God, our Father, responds any differently when we treat poorly those for whom he died? I died for him. I died for her. Take that to heart as you relate to your brothers and sisters. Don't pull them away. Don't pull them down into sin. Do anything but that. So I don't think Paul is refereeing a dispute between the strong and the weak here. Rather, he is exhorting some to stop using their knowledge, truth with which Paul would agree, to push the weak to eat food at pagan temples. By calling the weak to join them, the strong were laying a temptation before the weak that may end with them falling back into paganism. This is the epitome of unloving. 
Therefore, he says, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. It's overstatement, it's hyperbole, it's generalization, it's not a commitment on his part in some sense. But he's saying, he makes the point clear, think about your brother and sister. Do not make them stumble into sin. His passion is obvious. Love will lead us to set aside our rights for God's people. If I get the truth that I was created to live for God, then I will learn to put God's will ahead of my rights. And I'll learn then to support Christ's sanctifying work in his people over any freedom that I suppose that I have. Paul is not coaching them here to cater to every whim and desire of everyone who surrounds them. But he is saying, you live for God. It means that you live for your brother and sister for whom Jesus died. So the culture and social setting of this passage is a million miles from the concerns of our lives. There may be a few restaurants in our area that are in fact dens of iniquity. Maybe those will increase, I don't know. But the Corinthians' challenge is not our challenge. But in Paul's counsel, we face our calling to relate to one another as people for whom Jesus actually died. If we tap into his love for us, and if we then calibrate our minds and hearts to know that Jesus died for our brothers and sisters, we will lead with love for one another. We will be thoughtful, first of all, not for my freedoms, but first of all, for those Jesus died to save. We will show sensitivity to the spiritual progress of others more than we will insist on our own freedoms. And that's what Paul's going to illustrate in chapter 9. I set freedoms aside all the time. The, the, the idea that this means loving others, that we forget about truth, well, look at how he's talking to them. I mean, he's rebuking them. He's correcting them. He's setting things straight. It's not that kind of love. But it's a kind of love that says, you're first. You go before me. I will serve God's interests in your life above my own freedoms. So at the end of the day, we learn that in community, the joy of living for God by living for one another is our life. We will learn to live as though Christ actually died for our brothers and sisters just as assuredly as he died for us. And chief among our concerns will be people who are weak in the faith, people who are new in the faith, and our children. Paul is not talking about bowing to the scruples of judgmental people or those who merely take offense at the freedoms that we have in Christ. This text has in view believers we can influence to violate their conscience and thus to journey into sin. So find the new believer, find the weak, find the children among you and say, these are individuals for whom Christ has died as his people. We must protect them. We must watch over them. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 18? He taught us to think a certain way as his people. 
just to change the image slightly, you find yourself on a boat in the middle of the sea. can't see land in any direction. And around your neck is a rope tied tightly and connecting you to an anchor. And you're given the choice as you stand on the edge of this boat, you can be pushed over into the sea and suffer a horrific death, being drugged down quickly by this anchor to the bottom of the sea, never to see this world again. Or you can offend a weak, young Christian or child. The choice is yours. How will you decide? Now, that scenario, of course, is impossible. There's no situation where that's ever going to happen. But think of it. Looking over the side of that boat deep into the sea with an anchor around your neck, saying, it's better that I'm pushed off than that I offend a child. That I would influence a child against God that I would influence a weak or new believer against the truth and influence them to do what would not build them up in the faith. Jesus is teaching us to look at it that way and say, going down to that kind of death is better. And I just say, I can, I'm just beginning to touch how important a soul is to Christ. A soul for whom he died is of utmost worth. Never put your freedom, don't, do not even put your life ahead of that child, ahead of that weak believer. So Jesus masterfully uses that sort of image to alert us to this value. He uses that image to highlight how precious is the life and the purity of his saints in his own affections. When we begin to see one another in the light of Christ's love for all, it changes the way that we relate to one another in the home, in the church, in the broader church, and in society itself. That divine love is every bit as much directed at every true believer that you know as it is directed at you. So in that light, it is our privilege, it is our high calling to set our freedoms, our rights, our way aside when doing so will benefit a fellow believer's growth in Christ. To do this certainly pleases the God whose love gave his son to die for us while we were sinners, while we were his enemies. May we emulate that love with one another. Father, you are the one true and living God. There is no other. In Christ, you are the one true and living God. There is no other. Spirit of God, you are the one true and living God. There is but one. We praise you in your triune complexity that you are the creator and the sustainer of all that is, that you are the author of salvation, that you are the one who gives to your people new life. 
we praise you for the love that sent Christ to the cross. The love for this aching, dying, and broken world to redeem us to know to the depth and the core of our soul that we, are, that we exist for you. I pray that that truth would be known by all, by those today who do not receive you as Savior, that they would be drawn to that light of knowing that you are the creator, that you are the redeemer of our souls. For those who know you as Savior, I pray that this love would draw us close to you, but as you intend that it would also draw us to one another, help us to learn to see one another as beloved of God and to relate to each other with the grace and with the love that is then appropriate. We need you. We pray that you will help us as we apply this truth to the varying situations in our life. We're not in the East where our brothers and sisters in Christ could easily identify pagan temples and false sacrifices. But in our setting, Lord, may we have the same love for one another that will not harm a child, that will not point a weak believer in the wrong direction, that would never stomp on someone's conscience. But I pray that that we would join in on the sanctifying work of Jesus by giving our freedoms away, holding them loosely, and living for you and for each other. Aid us to this end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.